0: All right. Moving quickly, before we dive in with uh, both feet, two weeks from today, on July the 23rd, we have an opportunity as a church to bless the city that God has providentially placed us inside of. Uh, The city of Bellingham is experiencing. the economy as well as everybody, everybody else, you know, in the county, and because of that, they've had to scale back in a couple of different areas, and as a church, we have an opportunity now to step forward and meet some of those needs, and so we're looking for a couple of hundred of you to give up six hours on a Saturday to bless the city that you happen to worship in, whether you live in the city or don't, and uh, we're going to be doing um, some cleanup work, we're going to be doing some graffiti painting, a bunch of different uh, um, opportunities, it's essentially this. It's six hours to be the hands and feet of Jesus where God has planted you. That's what it is. And I can't think of a better thing to do than to be, um, have an opportunity to bless a group of people with no strings attached, just simply service. And so if you're interested, if you could head to the connection point afterwards, we would deeply appreciate that. So I want to welcome everybody here at the Bellingham campus. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us at our Ferndale campus and those of you who are watching online as well. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, Christ the King, and we're glad that you're here. I believe the best time to talk about winter is in the middle of summer. I grew up in Manitoba where winter seemed to go on forever. Endless days of snow and frost, frostbite, long underwear, darkness, dead car batteries, Long layers of, of clothing that insulated humans against the cold. Seasonal affective disorder. More snow, more frost, and more frostbite. That's how I lived my life till I moved here. Aren't you glad you came in out of the sunshine to hear that description, right? Are you encouraged? You're welcome, all right? In wintertime, you live for summer. There's something about the sunshine that just makes life a little bit easier. But the reality is this. When it's winter in your soul, it's hard to see the sun no matter how hard you try. When the cold isolation of a divorce hits you right between your eyes. When the frozen rage of a bankruptcy that you didn't see coming freezes you in your tracks. When the the darkness of a miscarriage or a tragedy freezes your heart from feeling you're in the middle of winter and you can be in that season even in the middle of july this weekend i want to introduce you to a man who knew winter all too well even though he lived in a desert climate even though he understood the sun and heat very very well even he was not immune to having to live through a season of winter in his soul let me read to you the prologue to a portion of ancient mesopotamian literature Say that five times fast, okay? In the book of Job, the Bible says this. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. And he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. I think it's fair to say that Job possessed the human dream. He had a great family. He had financial security. For Job, life was good. There were no big worries, no huge challenges. Life was just clipping along. And in the book of Job, one of the most difficult books in all of Scripture to understand, you actually have two pictures or screens in operation at the same time. The big screen tells the account of what's happening in heaven on a heavenly plane, and the small screen describes what's going on down here on earth. It's kind of like the picture-in-picture feature that you can get on a new TV. I've got one of those. It's never worked for me, okay? But let me describe the drama on the big screen. In Job chapter 1, starting at verse 8, the Bible says this is what happens in heaven. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. I said that this book was a little bit confusing because if you dive into it at first reaction, you might have some very strange perceptions about God and how he acts. At first glance, this book almost looks like a cosmic game of Texas Hold'em between God and Satan, and Job is the million-dollar chip sitting in the middle of the table. It almost appears, if you look at it at face value, that God is using Job as bait, and Satan essentially says this. He goes, I know how this works. Job's got this sweet deal going on down there on earth. He's living the dream, and that's what determines his faith. But if you take away his stuff, this is what's going to happen, God. He's going to take you out like yesterday's garbage. He'll ditch you in a second if all of this good stuff goes away. So let's just see what happens. The truth is, this story is not a cosmic bet. It's actually a true historical account where humans' response to tragedy... It's put on trial. Satan is testing this assertion. If you add enough pain to people, even people with great faith will ditch their faith in God. And so as the story begins, the first wave of pain comes. Job chapter 1, starting at verse 13, it actually describes the devastation of Job's dream. In a short amount of time, if you read the account, all of Job's livestock dies. All of Job's servants are slaughtered, every single one of them. And all of Job's children are killed in a natural disaster. The Bible says winter sets in on Job's soul, and he's absolutely devastated. He's broken. He's living with a series of questions that no human being would ever want to have to try and answer. While that's going on on the big screen, there's something happening on the small screen. Down on earth, in Job chapter 1, the Bible says this. In response to this incredible tragedy that just happened, this is what happens. The Bible says that this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. I want you to notice this. He grieves the loss. God gives us permission to grieve when we lose something. There is nothing biblical about slapping a happy face and faking it. There's a word for that. It's called lying. The Bible says when you lose, you're allowed to grieve. You're allowed to ask why. You're allowed to share with people just how much pain you're in. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it at all. And then the Bible says this, then he fell to the ground in worship. That is an interesting deal for me right there. I get very interested in this man right there. And he says this in worship, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away may the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job's response has always baffled me, never got it. I get the first part. The Lord gives. I get that. We love it when he gives, don't we? It's easy to say, blessed be the name of the Lord when God gives. You know, when he gives the miracle, when he gives the answer to prayer that you wanted, when he gives you anything that just makes your life a little bit easier. In those moments, as people, we just bless the name of the Lord all over the place. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Jesus is my friend. This is getting better. Woo! How you doing, man? Doing great and getting better. It's awesome. When he gives, that's the natural response. I get the first part, but what about the second? What about when he takes away? What about when he takes away your income? What about when he takes away your security, both of which, by the way, are an amazing opportunity to trust? What about when he takes away the dream? I don't know about you, but my response is not usually worship. It's usually whining. That's what comes out of me. Up to this point in the, in the account, Job's held it together. He lived up to his reputation of being the greatest man in the East, but now it's winter. Everything, everything that he once held dear is gone. It's been ripped from his hands in a wave that would crush any man. It knocks him down, but here's what's amazing. His faith actually holds. He's hanging by a thread, but he worships. Make no mistake, worship is not the natural response, but that's what Job does he is heartbroken but he responds to god instead of reacting to his circumstances in not sinning job makes a decision in the midst of this pain i'm going to name god as my greatest ally not my most convenient enemy i'm going to choose to be on his side even when i can't figure out for the life of me why this is happening what's job left with after his dream is dead i mean the bible actually describes it for us. it says he's left with his pain Job chapter two says this. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery, scraped himself with it as he sat in the ashes. I mean, do I need to say it? This guy's a mess. He's moved from being a prominent businessman to being a walking, talking advertisement for pain management. I mean, this guy is hurting. The pain is real in his body, but it's even more in his heart. I mean, the sores aren't even the smallest part of his issue. He's left with his pain. Secondly, he's left with his wife. Be careful with this one now. Okay? Job 2 verse 9 says this. His wife said to them, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Wow. Right? Curse God and God die. Now, I want you to notice, it says, what comes next? Husbands, pay special attention to this. It says, he replied. Doesn't say he cursed. Doesn't say he shamed. Doesn't say he made fun of her. It says, he replied in a normal conversational tone. You got that, men? Okay? All right. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. (laughs) I didn't laugh. You did. Okay. All right. Okay. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job didn't sin in what he said. Now, I'm going to go on the record. I think Mrs. Job gets a really, really, really bad rap. I don't think any of us have the right to judge her unless, of course, you've had 10 children die in the same day. Otherwise, I think we all need to zip it and pay respect to a lady who walked through a lot of pain. We often forget she lost everything too. I mean, for those of you who are parents, you're not so different. If you've ever stayed up at night and begged God to give you a fever that your baby had, you understand exactly what she's trying to do here. She just wants the pain to stop she wants her husband to be okay again. She doesn't want him to hurt anymore. Job asks a great, great question, doesn't he? Well, we love the good when it comes from God, but what about the challenging? We love the blessing of more, but how does our faith do when we're blessed with less? Have you ever noticed that the word blessing actually contains the word less, not more? But we don't even think that way, do we? I think Job could use a little help here, could use a little support right about now. So he's left with his pain, left with his wife, and then we find out he's actually left with his friends. Job chapter two, this is what happens. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Bellinghamite, or Namathite, however you want to put it there, okay, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance they could hardly recognize him do you get that he's so broken with grief they can't even tell it's Have you ever seen somebody that's lost a child about three weeks later it just looked empty there's nothing there they began to weep aloud they tore their robes sprinkled dust on their heads then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. The rest of the story is going to show us something. If you read the book of Job, you're going to learn this, not judging him, just telling you the way it is. Job's friends proved to be idiots, okay? They're off. Not a help whatsoever, but before we blast them, let's learn something from them, okay? I got a quick question for you. How many of you have a friend in your life Who, if you experienced a tragedy, would come and sit with you for seven days and seven nights and not say a word. How many of you are that kind of a friend? You'd put your whole existence on hold for an entire week and go and sit with somebody day and night and not say a single thing. They come to sit Shiva. It's a Jewish custom. And i tell you, I want you to notice something else. Not only do they come and sit with their friend, they do an amazing job until they start talking. That's a clue. Okay? That's a clue. And the clue is this. Sometimes it's better to come and just be than to talk and pretend that you've got all the answers. These guys come and they share the winter of Job's soul, but then they start talking, and what comes out of their mouth is actually terrible, terrible theology. Okay? They begin to wax eloquent on what I call the heretical doctrine of divine retribution. Okay? Let me tell you what that is in easier terms. It, it's the thinking that goes like this. If you do everything right, then God blesses. But if you don't do everything right, God will make you suffer. Because that's what his friends start saying. You must have done something, Job. Job. Yet yeah, even though it says he was a man who loved God and always walked in the right direction, you must have done something, Job. I mean, come on, tell us what the secret sin is. Drag it out here in the open. Let's just be done with it. You had to do something to tick God off. Here's the saddest part about the false doctrine of retribution. You hear it in the church all the time. And it makes me so angry when I hear it. You hear people say, every time there's a natural disaster, well, that must have been God's judgment. I heard it right after Katrina. That was God's judgment on New Orleans because that city was wicked. Can I ask you a question? Can anybody name me a city that's not? And don't you dare say Linden, okay? We are so not going there, all right? I can say that. I live there, okay? Name me a city that isn't. I mean, I heard it, the tsunami was God's judgment on those nations who turned their back on God and because of their sexual debauchery. If that's true, you better move. And let me tell you why you better move, because you live smack dab between the city in North America that has the fewest Christians in it anywhere. That's the city of Seattle and the city of Vancouver, British Columbia, which was just named the human trafficking trafficking capital of the world. If you believe in divine retribution, you better get to Minnesota right now. Oh, you can't go there. There's a flood. I wonder what those guys did, right? I mean, let's just be honest. My friends, bumper sticker answers with bad theology don't help people who are living in winter. That's why the Bible says you're to mourn with those who mourn. The arguments of the friends actually make it worse because they push Job towards a wrong understanding of God. Job's dream is dead, and now thanks to his friends, his faith is actually struggling more. Here's the truth. In spiritual winter, your faith and your reality come into conflict. When you're in the dark night of the soul, your faith and your reality are in conflict, and one of the byproducts is confusion. If you don't believe me, read Job 19 sometimes. At the beginning of it, Job says, God wronged me. 16 verses later, he's saying this, I know that my Redeemer lives. Does that sound confusing to you? Here's the cool thing. God can handle your confusion and your questions in winter. In fact, God comes to calmer confusion. Job, in this next couple of chapters, becomes so desperate for answers, he demands a hearing from God. Here's a spiritual lesson for you. Be careful what you ask for. Because if you demand a conversation, and accounting with God, be careful because he might just give you one. Job says, I want to have a conversation with the guy who's picking on me. And God says, let's talk. Scary. In the conversations that follow over chapters, God asked Job a series of really, really tough questions. He said, Job, I know you're hurting, but where were you when I mapped out every river on the face of the earth? God, I, or Job, I, I know you're heartbroken, but where were you when I taught the wind how to do what it does? Job, I know you're brokenhearted, but where were you when I created animal kind? The Bible actually says that God goes into great detail about a behemoth. Think a hippo the size of a dinosaur, bigger than this building. And God looks at where in the world were you when I made that? Because that was good. That was awesome. God actually brags just a little bit about the ostrich. Where were you when I made that bird? I picked up a bird, decided it couldn't fly, grabbed it by the head and the feet and stretched. Where were you when I was being that creative, Job? I know you're angry and I know you're hurt, but just remember just exactly who you're dealing with. And even though you can't see beyond your pain right now, that does not mean that I'm not good. And that doesn't mean I don't love you. God actually calls it cool in Hebrew. As God unpacks himself for Job, he reveals himself as a God with chutzpah, a God with flair, a God with style, a God who understands pain and actually invented winter. As we watch their conversation, we learn this. We learn that in his winter, Job discovers a God who's irrationally loving and incredibly good. He meets a God who does all things well and promises that when the pain of life washes over us like a flood, that at the very least, he's going to hold us in the middle of that storm. This is Job's transformed response in Job chapter 42. The Bible says this, then Job replied to the Lord. I mean, you want to talk about an about face? Okay, this is the same God that said, or this is the same guy that just said, hey God, let's talk. After the conversation, this is how he sounds. Little different tone, okay? Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, same word as the one used when he talked to his wife. I know that you can do all things, no plans of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, "Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will answer me." My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I I despise myself and repent in dust. If you're struggling to put this all together, that's okay. Because it's a confusing little piece here. In the simplest way, in the middle of his pain, Job finds a brand new understanding of God. He doesn't grasp the why. But he's moved beyond a word of faith into a life of faith. And here's what we learn. We learn that the resolution of your pain is not in your circumstance. It's in the encounter. It's when you come face to face with God. Let me put it to you this way. This is how Job finds peace in his heart in the midst of absolute devastation. He exchanges a why for a who. Just let that sink in for a second. He puts aside why, knowing he'll probably never understand, and he makes a decision instead to worship who A God who's irrationally loving and incredibly good even when it doesn't appear like it is. If you don't believe me, look at the words from Job 13 when he says this, though he slay me, this is Job talking about God, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Basically Job says, what other choice do I have? I can go through this alone or I can go through it with him and he wants to go with me. So should I or should I not trust? Pain brings us face to face with God and our real self. Job learns in this pain that his Redeemer really does live. Job learns God is the greatest of allies. He learns that his faith, even though it's shaky, can carry him to a greater understanding of God. How about you, Christ the King? I know it's it's the middle of summer, hard to think about winter, but how about you? How do you handle winter? As a pastor, I spend a lot of time with people as they go through some deep and dark moments. If you don't know this, I'm going to say it so you do know. Just because you love Jesus does not mean you will have endless summer for the rest of your days. Amen? Doesn't mean that. It's not all sunshine and roses following Jesus. In fact, you need to read the Gospels and get a very strong reality check about what following Jesus really means. Worth it? Oh yeah. Smooth? Mm -mm. Many that I've walked alongside of have said the same thing to me. In the darkest moment of my life, when, when I lost a child, what I found out is that God understood because he lost a child too when I lost everything that I owned, when I, when I was inflicted with chronic or debilitating illness, when, when I got divorced and never ever thought that would even be a possibility for me. In those moments, I've heard people say over and over again, they look back and they say, that was painful, painful, painful. But in my darkest moment, I came face to face with a God who is irrationally loving and incredibly good. pain was real, but so was the love of God that sustained them. Job has an encounter with God in the midst of his pain. He's forever changed. And in responding to Job's heart, God actually declares the doctrine of divine retribution to be absolutely unequivocally false. Just because you live right in this world doesn't make you immune from pain because we actually live in a broken world. Sometimes what we see as punishment is actually protection. And even in the bad winter moments, God calls us to step up, have courage, and trust Him. In fact, I love this. God gets so upset with Job's friends because their theology is so bad, He says, I'm not going to forgive you guys unless Job prays for you. I'm done with you guys unless you can get your friend Job to pray for you because he's the only sane one in the bunch. It's a great chapter. You should read it, all right? God says to these guys, You missed it. Your religious answer was wrong. I don't work that way. I work my way. And if you want to understand how I work, you talk to my friend because he's been through it. Here's the epilogue in Job 42. I love this. It says, The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapak. Nowhere in all the lands was there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them inheritance along with their brothers. Now, we don't get the significance of that last little chunk because we're not Mesopotamian Eastern thinkers. Let me tell you, those last couple of verses are the most important part of the book, and it's not just because God doubled back everything that Job lost. That's not the important part. In fact, you've got to have to look at it this way. We actually see the transformation of Job in his relationship with his girls. I get that because I'm a daddy. My daughter's gorgeous. She melts me every time she walks into a room. Job names his girls three specific names because in naming them that, he's actually showing just how much his heart has changed. Okay, you ready for it? Here it comes. All right. He names the first girl Jemima, which literally means beautiful dove. A dove is a symbol of what? Peace. She's the peace bringer. He names his second daughter Kaziah, which means the smell of cinnamon. It's a good smell. Have you ever walked into Bellas Fair by Cinnabon on a Saturday morning? Yes. You get calories just inhaling. It's awesome. Thirdly, he names his little girl Karen Hapak, which means "horn of eye shadow." OK? It's like naming your kid Liz Claiborne. You get that? OK? And some of you don't. Ask your wife, she'll tell you. OK, all right. Job calls his girls beautiful by, by the names he chooses them, but there's more. OK? here, here it comes. He does, according to this scripture, the unthinkable in his culture. He gives an inheritance to his girls. Now, I know some of you are like, so? That's not the way it's done in ancient Eastern Mesopotamia. You never gave your daughters an inheritance because they were going to go and marry off. And what it meant was they were going to take your retirement fund that you divided up amongst your kids so they'd look after you. They were going to take it and give it to your in-laws. You wouldn't do that, would you? Come on, shake your head no, tell the truth, okay? But this is what's amazing. Bible says that Job gave an inheritance to his daughters. That was unthinkable. That was a scandal. You just didn't do that. That was like you saying, I don't want my family to look after me when I'm old. The only reason you would do it is this. If you were a father who was irrationally loving and incredibly good... Where do you think Job learned that from? That's the depth of Scripture. The details say that somewhere along the line, in his pain and in winter, Job was completely transformed. And if it was possible, actually became more godly and more holy. To a point where people looked at him and said, that guy's nuts. That guy loves his kids so much, I think he might even die for them. Where do you think he learned that from? Children of God. So that's the last little point in your outline. Somewhere in the middle of winter, God breathes a new love into Job that's irrationally loving. Incredibly good. I know for a fact there are people in this room and in Ferndale right now and watching online who are living in winter even though it's July. I prayed with a young lady this past week who just suffered her fourth miscarriage. I prayed with two people who just got laid off. I laid with a, or or I had an opportunity to pray with a family who just found out that their grandpa has cancer from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Plenty of winter to go around. And as we get ready to close today, we're going to do something just a little bit crazy because it may take us a little overtime, but I believe it needs to be done and when the Holy Spirit says do something I want to do it because if I don't I'll be awake all night and I'll have to repent tomorrow or next week when I come back so we're not going to do that okay so here's the deal if you are in winter however you define it stand up stand up and no I'm not the only one in the room yeah see it just took us a little while to get the wave going Yeah, you're in winter. You're just living through it right now and it's hard and the sun's out and everybody's ticking you off because they're smiling all the time because it's just hard. It's okay to be in winter and it's okay to grieve it. Here's what we're going to do. If you are in winter, you're going to stay standing. If you're sit- seating or sit beside somebody who's in winter, I just need one or two people to go and stand beside each one of those people. And I just want you to put your hand on their shoulders because we're going to pray for them because that's what God tells us to do. One or two or 25 or 40, that'd be cool. Got a couple right up here in the corner. I need some people to move there real, real quick. Just hard to see down here in the dark. Awesome. Very cool. I'm going to ask the worship team come on back out. awesome don't know what your winter is don't need to know a god who's incredibly irrationally loving and incredibly good he knows exactly what your winter is and he has not forgotten you and neither have we would you pray with me let's pray right now father god into this season of winter we pray spring Father, we pray a higher amount of courage for our brothers and sisters. We pray for courage and the ability to grieve. I pray the blessing of tears over them. I pray that you would help them and hold them and allow them to have a conversation with you in which you whisper the truth that in spite of what's happening around them, that you are a God who's irrationally loving, incredibly good, that you do crazy things like give inheritance to rebellious children, that you name us beautiful, peace, sweet-smelling, and that you dance and sing over us. So, Father, whether it's the heartbreak of a miscarriage, The death of a dream, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a job, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters who are standing, that they would exchange their why for a who, and that they would worship a God who is loving, who hasn't forgotten, who prays for them who is their strength, who has not walked away, who has not turned his back, but who desperately wants to be the comfort in their pain. Would you bless them today and help them? And it is in your good name, the name of our living Redeemer, Jesus Christ, that we pray with all joy and all authority and God's people agreed together and said amen and amen. God bless you as you head back to your seats. Thank you for the courage of standing. God bless you guys in Ferndale.